the bottom line is if you have a good relationship with someone, if there's some stability, there's resilience in the relationship, the conversations aren't as difficult. Rewiring our brains for more peace, happiness, and satisfaction. Sounds like the stuff of a great science fiction novel. The truth is, this is all very doable, and we can learn to enhance our life experience by learning the tools that help us go beyond our primitive programming. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. And on this episode, we speak with Dr. Daniel Ellenberg. Daniel Ellenberg is the president of Relationships That Work, an organization that supports people to create more emotionally intelligent personal relationships and the vice president of the Rewire Leadership Institute, an organization that helps individuals, teams, and organizations thrive in the business world. He is also the founder and director of Strength with Heart, men's groups and workshops, and co-author of Lovers for Life, creating lasting passion, trust, and true partnership. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me here on The Spark. I'm happy to. We started talking a little bit about your personal journey that has brought you to where you are now and the things that you're doing. Um, I'm very curious talking with you about um, relationships that work. So before we get there, tell me a little bit about what it was like. You said that you grew up in Jersey. Well, I think it's a very good place to live. <laughs> I think for me, one of the core experiences of growing up was having the, having the experience that people were not uh, speaking about what they were actually experiencing. So I've always had a certain kind of intuitive feel about people, and what I saw coming out versus what I was imagining was going on inside was quite different. And when I would attempt to speak to it at times, I got shut down, being the youngest of my family, what did I know, and I was completely wrong, and everything was fine, even though there was levels of emotional abuse that were going on, but no, there's no problem here. What do you, what do you mean? What are you, what are you seeing? And I came to distrust that pretty accurate perception. There was something in my psyche that wasn't going to just roll over, and eventually, Eventually, I, I did leave and was, you know, sought out people who were more like-minded. I did find people along the way, you know, growing up in New, New Jersey and going to school in Boston who I had some simpatico with. But I had a sense that moving to California, I'd have a bunch more, and that has certainly turned out to be true. And I've spent, you know, almost two-thirds of my life out in California uh, at this point. And the three main areas, I think, I, that I'm working in right now are having difficult conversations and interestingly enough i've been i've been doing those i've been doing trainings for therapists you know, on those as well as for the general public and i've uh, i've been doing these workshops how to have difficult conversations for a while there through their public programs and i'm going to be speaking to a person tomorrow who's one of the heads of the program i'm going to suggest something else that's different, which is actually how to have appreciative conversations, you know, because I think that one of the things that people aren't very good at 
is showing appreciation for others right. as well as receiving the appreciation of others. And as I was thinking about this territory of difficult conversations, you know, the bottom line is if you have a good relationship with someone, if there's some stability, there's resilience in the relationship, the conversations aren't as difficult is really what it comes down to. And if, so if there's a, a, a wellspring, so to speak, of positive energy there, that's that bodes well for when things don't go well, you know, and so in the another area I've been working with is resilience. You know, I've been certainly involved with Rick and I, I I've taught with him and I, I, I sometimes will lead his meditation group uh, when he's gone. And that's the, the, so the territory of resilience is a whole other long story. But in looking at resilience, one of the most important things about resilience is stability. So in any area of life, look, if, if you have basically good health, stable health, then the next cold or flu isn't going to, you know, put you on your deathbed, potentially. If you don't, you know, it can be far more severe. If you have financial stability, something goes wrong, and you're not out of your house. But if you don't have stability, you know, it's far more threatening. You know, so there are different elements of resilience that I've been really, really looking at. And so I think about in relationship uh, stability, like how do you really create a wellspring of positive uh, energy intent there? And I, that's why I'm looking forward to having this conversation tomorrow. I hope she's going to say yes, you know, too, because I'm realizing that, you know, a lot of times people don't say what they really like about somebody else. It feels it feels vulnerable to share positive things. Yeah. As well as well as when someone you know offers an acknowledgement, you know, and the person, oh no 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 no, it's no big deal. It was anyone could have done it. Oh, you know that kind of thing. And I very consistently when I say something that's acknowledging, and I definitely am an outlier in that regard. I'm probably an outlier also in the other regard. I'll bring up difficult matters if, if, they, if they strike me, that if someone discounts it, I very quickly go, oh, you know, it was an offering that just came your way. You know, just receive it. And I think that that's where Rick's work, I think, is really, really good about uh, letting in the positive there and recognizing when something comes your way to be open to that. And so I'm, I'm a very, very strong believer in that. And we could spend at least an hour talking about that, I have no doubt. Absolutely. You know, I, I think about, I had this couple in my office that had been married 47 years. And what they were fighting about literally was that he put too much spice in the food and that she didn't like his wine selections. So, I mean, those, of course, were the symptoms. And underneath it was that neither one felt respected or appreciated. And so literally it, within one week, I saw such a transformation by just encouraging them before they went to sleep at night to notice throughout the day a few things so that at night before they went to bed, they could say, this is something I appreciate about you and have three things they could just acknowledge. And it was so interesting because a week later when they came back, you could just tell, I mean, this tension and anxiety had just really receded because neither one had been acknowledging each other for years. Or showing this appreciation, or, like you said, being able to receive it. 
and it's a game changer. I think there's been a belief that removing the negative is what what increases the positive. You know, and I would say removing the negative removes some of the negative, but it doesn't necessarily increase the positive. And that's a whole different uh, set of uh, focus and skills that are, you know, critically important. Yeah, I mean, it's not enough to just, you know, you you get rid of the negative and then there's a hole. Exactly. Yeah. So how do we fill that up and how do we open ourselves up so that we can be filled up? We have to even have it as as a focus of attention. Here, I'm going to give you one of my favorite quotes. I don't know if you remember R.D. Lang. You know that name, R.D. Lang? He was uh, a Scottish psychiatrist who worked with some pretty disturbed populations. He's a very interesting character. He was a a student of uh, Harry Stack Sullivan, way back to your your graduate school. He, He said, the range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice that, we fail to notice there's nothing we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. You know, and so you have to even be paying attention for it. If you don't pay attention to the positive, you will not see that. I mean, it's part of, you know, brain priming. We don't see what we are consciously and or unconsciously not looking for. So how do we start attuning to that? How do we start noticing what we don't naturally notice? Well, you, that's that's part of the looking at versus looking from. You know, you think about from a mindfulness perspective, we tend to fuse with our thoughts. We believe what we think. That's my favorite bumper sticker, by the way. Don't believe everything you think. I love it, yes. <clears throat> so like how do you start to notice that that's a thought, but that's not necessarily true because thoughts are like free radicals in a certain way that thought happens and doesn't exist unto itself if it's poignant enough. It actually attaches to somatic sensations and emotions. I, I, I've created a new word. I call it somotional. Soma and emotions. Because yeah. I, the way, I think the way we speak about the body and emotions, like they're like distinct categories or something, but they're not. They, they're, they're experientially intertwined and, and part of the same system. It's just part of our brains that we have to separate things and put them in the categories. It's like, oh, there's orange and there's red. No, there's not. <laughs> there's a spectrum and at a certain point we go, okay, that's orange and that's red. <laughs> but it's on a continuum. It's on a continuum. That's uh, that's always how I look at things. So oftentimes people say, is it this or is that? And I go, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so part of what you're saying is as, as we practice some mindfulness, you know, we can kind of do that thing where we separate from our thoughts and realize thoughts are always happening. Wayne Dyer talks about thoughts being like, if you ever watch the news, and then there's that ticker tape of news going underneath the screen, those are our thoughts. And every once in a while, we'll pluck up something and make it full screen. We'll pluck a thought from the ticker tape, make it full screen, and then that's what we're focusing on. 
But the reality is we don't have to make that full screen. It's just a thought. We can put it back in the ticker tape if it's something that doesn't serve us. Exactly. I love that analogy. That's an interesting one. Well, I mean, you think about how easy it is to go from positive to negative. Like somebody is sitting and they're looking at a beautiful sunset. It's so beautiful. And then they go, and now all of a sudden they have a thought of like, I remember when I, I was here with John looking at the sunset. And like, John, I can't believe what he did to me. You know, and before you know it, the person's in a terrible mood. And they were just sitting enjoying a beautiful sunset because of how the mind works through association, this and that. And then if you, if you bite on that particular thought that shows up, then it leads you into a really negative space. And so it's like stepping back. Always stepping back. And I think part of what's confusing about being human is that, on the one hand, you want to associate and connect, you know, and be open. On the other hand, you don't want to just associate to anything. And so that's you know, it's pretty challenging. Well, it's so dualistic, you know. It's it's this detachment, if you will, that emotions and thoughts and these things just happen to us. And and then what I'm hearing you say too. And then there's this also very deep desire to connect and to be seen and heard and witnessed and truly know someone else and be able to express ourselves at these really deep authentic levels right that being the duality it's easy to get caught in the ticker tape or it's easy to get caught in like you said i'm looking at the beautiful sunset and pretty soon i'm you know down the rabbit hole when you're working with people how do you teach people to do that step back I will ask them, for example, have there been other times when you were feeling really, really good and then a thought came in and suddenly before you knew it, you were down the rabbit hole. And of course, people say, yeah, absolutely all the time. And then I'll say, so do you believe everything you think? I mean, it's literally, and most people have never even thought about that as a potential way of orienting. Because I think most people think, well, I thought it. It must be true. I mean, if I thought it, I mean, does there need to be any other bastion of authenticity in the fact that I thought it? And I say, well, have you ever had contradictory thoughts? Like they both couldn't be true. Like that you are a magnificent human being or you are the worst person who's ever walked the face of this earth. Yes, I have. How could they both, both be true? Well, well, I guess it depended on my mood in some way. Oh, okay, so your mood. Moods are very interesting. You know, we talk a lot about emotions, not as much about moods. And moods tend to be the greatest kind of uh, screen or filter through which we see things. So when you're in a really good mood, life looks different, doesn't it? And it's amazing how differently people treat you, isn't it, depending on your mood. Just a coincidence. And so we're really looking at what, are, what is it that you as a person are, you know, putting off. And to the degree that you can actually step back and be noticing that and looking at that. Because part of what I'll do with people is say, like, do you want to feel free in yourself? You know, that you are not a slave of whatever you think. Because do you love everything you think? No. What would that be like to actually just 
know, be observing of that and to be able to breathe and step back from that. And so there are various practices that really work. You know, I'm a strong believer in self-compassion. You know, I, I've been very involved with a body of work called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is, you know, of that work, Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. So they, the two of them have, have created a great training. I'm involved with bringing more of the MSC to a male-only population. It's been a big part of my own work in more recent times, increasingly so, about how to help men become more self-compassionate, because it turns out that, you know, one of the great ways of creating more kind of emotional distance from triggering thoughts is to be caring towards yourself. You know, at that time, it hurts to even have that thought and to take a breath and to really bring some care and compassion to yourself for suffering in that regard. Because, you know, of course, as human beings, we all suffer. And at the same time, there are ways of, you know, moving away from that and shifting it. What do you think makes it more difficult for men to be compassionate with themselves than women? They shouldn't have weaknesses. They shouldn't have vulnerabilities. They shouldn't have doubts. They should be confident all the time. And of course, that's not possible, you know, being human. And when you think about one of the major ways that males learn to um, become males, or men, so to speak, like women don't have to prove being a woman, you know, but you have to prove being a man in some way, is by denying vulnerability. You learn, like, I'm not vulnerable. You know, and so that denial of vulnerability is really at the core, of, I think, of toxic masculinity. To recognize that you're human and, yeah, sure, you feel vulnerable. Yeah, you do care about what other people think about you. You do get anxious at times going into social gatherings, parties, or even, even to work. That it is normal to be status-seeking, you know, to want to be seen in positive positive lights through you know other other people that you are wanting approval you are wanting uh, appreciation from others and that's that's normal natural but the thing is if you give more of that to yourself you become less desperate you know for from others and less likely to want to deny the part of you that you know wants to be seen I, I want you to see me in a positive light you probably want me to see you in a positive light I mean, we're human, and that's just a natural part of being human. And I think that men tend to suffer more in silence and have difficulties acknowledging their doubts and insecurities. And, you know, it's very problematic. Having been leading weekly men's groups now for 34 years, I can say that having had the experience with, like, a lot of different men over a lot of different years, that it really makes a difference to be able to speak about the challenges of being human, you know, of being male in a supportive group of find out like, you know, you may feel alone, but you're really not alone. Well, and it's interesting what you're saying because I can really resonate it resonate with it in men that I've worked with in that 
sometimes covering up that insecurity or that anxiety, you see this outward manifestation of like bravado. And that's kind of a protective mechanism. And I imagine, my gosh, it must take so much energy and it must be so anxiety provoking to keep that up. Exactly. Well, I think it's interesting that uh, women or females attempt suicide four or five times more often than men. However, men are successful uh, 400% more. Like there are four times as many males who actually commit suicide than females. You know, so when they're serious, they're, they don't try as much, but they're way more successful. And know, usually more violent. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's part, part of the of reason the they're successful. Right, and it's part of the male role, as it, as it turns out. Well, and one of the things I've noticed, too, I, I actually have a large percentage of men in my practice. And one of the things that I've really noticed, too, is a lot of our work is this journey, literally you know, about 18 inches, you know, from their head down into their heart and learning to move into that place that, that isn't really comfortable sometimes for men. In, in, your, in your experience in these men's groups, so how are you helping them to gain self-compassion? What are some of those tools? Well, I have them, when they're hurting, I'll have them pause, you know, for a moment and recognize that for starters, they are hurting. You know, a lot of times people are hurting, but they're just not aware that they're hurting. They just get surly in a bad mood or something and just go literally like, you know, it seems like you're suffering right now. And to be aware, you know, that they're suffering. And if you look at, for example, the three different components of mindful self-compassion, I'll I'll use those. Mindfulness, this is a moment of suffering to be aware that you're suffering. Two, common humanity. People suffer. I mean... Do other do you guys can you guys relate to what John or Jim or Jerry you know is experiencing right now? And generally, yeah, absolutely, I can you know relate to it. Common humanity. You're not you're not unique or like you are unique, just like everyone else. You know, so common humanity, and then you know, to be kind to yourself in that process. It's always nice to put your hand on your heart and breathe and. Just remember that you're still a person that's deserving of love. And even if you screwed up in some way, that you can bring kindness to yourself. And to bring kindness to yourself, if what you really want is to enact and express more of your uh, pro-social values, like generosity and whatnot, then beating yourself up is not going to be a pathway into what you most want. You know, and so are you really going to have the courage, you know, to be kind to yourself? And that seems a bit oxymoronic, you know, to a lot of people. But it actually does take courage, you know, to do that because um, in part, it's going to like, what's wrong with you? Oh, you need kindness, do you? <laughs> you know, like this kind of this sarcasm, like you can't just take it on your own, like. Buck you, up. Exactly. I hate this and man up. Yeah. It's like, that's not what we really be, what we really need right now. So, you know, being kind to yourself takes a certain level of strength. I actually call my men's group strength with heart, you know, that they're not distinct, you know, and that by uh, acknowledging your vulnerabilities and being present with those, that doesn't make you more feminine, which is one of these idiotic 
beliefs that's developed around like you know female qualities and male qualities. I wrote my dissertation on aspects of the male role and looking at androgyny scales and you know the female. It's like we shouldn't be saying caring, compassion, kindness is female. Those no. should be human. No doubt. Also, what I'm hearing here is this thing about our strength, male or female, really is in being able to step into that vulnerability. That's a big part of it. And be focused on what your core values are and live from those values despite discomfort in doing so. I hear people say all the time, like, you know, they'll make a suggestion and they'll go like, are you comfortable doing that? And I think, what a bad question. I always go like, are you willing to do that? Mm -hmm. Not are you comfortable? Because you know, when you think about many of the things that, and I'm sure you found this, Stephanie, that when you're expressing a core value, it feels pretty vulnerable to do so. You're not comfortable doing it. And if you are waiting to feel comfortable to express it, it would indeed be a very, very long wait. And so I think that many times in life, we have to challenge ourselves. So it's, it's vulnerable, but that doesn't mean sitting on the sidelines. That means it's vulnerable to express a goal that is in some way a part of a, of a certain value. So for example, if you're really, really valuing love, love, connection, and you're feeling either an, a, an interest and attraction to expressing that to somebody with the potential of being rejected, you know, in doing that, or there's some uh, obstacle that's in the way and it feels vulnerable to express, hey, let's talk about, you know, this obstacle in the way it's not comfortable, you know, and so if the desire is, if the value is, you know, connection, love, then you're going to go for it despite feeling gosh darn uncomfortable, you know, in doing so. And as it turns out, over time, the more you practice these, the easier they get, but they don't get easy. Anyone who works out, you know, has worked out for a long time, it's always hard. It's never easy. And if it's easy, you're not doing it right. <laughs> right. I mean, you might get in the habit of doing it, but you're always challenging yourself. Yes. When you're doing these strength with heart men's groups, that you've been doing it, you said, for 35 years. Almost 34 plus. Yeah. Wow. How long are they? And, and what do you, do you have a certain format or are they just like a weekly therapy group or what does that look like? Well, I call them men's growth groups. And I think that whenever the word therapy is thrown in you know, to it, there's always a stigma involved in it. And to me, these are really about life groups. I have mm -hmm. guy in one of my groups for like 25 years and people have said to him, like, like, aren't you getting better or something? He's like, I don't look, it's not getting better. I mean, we're on a journey together. You know, and people are, you know, coming in and they're exploring different life issues from, you know, having, you know, last week, uh, one guy's wife's father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. You know, they, these, this, these types of things are difficult to deal with alone. They're difficult even in a group, but like to, to get support for the, the inevitable 
challenges you know that that come up in life um so i think that you know in the format that i use which is two hours a week you know and their groups happen you know unless i'm unless i'm not there which does happen because i do travel some then it's an opportunity for people to be really sharing with each other about what is at the heart of their lives and and how they feel about each other and each other's presence and having a an opportunity to practice real life relating skills that are transferable you know, into other relationships. Whether we look at it as a, a lab, you know, or a place to experiment. People will say things in group that they wouldn't normally say and we, the practice is not to be blaming other people. You pissed like you pissed me off, you're a jerk. We're not it's much more about what comes up in me it's interesting a point in my heart here mm -hmm. but what comes up in me in terms of how i feel in your presence you know what is it that you do that is kind of inspiring opening um enhancing to me and what do you do that's off-putting that actually leads to me shutting my heart down in relation to you and so to be, be given feedback is incredibly important i think most people do not get enough feedback, you know, positive or negative. I mean, it's probably a lot more negative, but not constructive. And so learning how to show up and do it sometimes differently with each other. I mean, so what I'm hearing you say is you practice in these groups, being more authentic, open to feedback, practicing relationally, and then being able to take that out into the world, into their own relationships. Absolutely. That's powerful. And, and it makes sense to me, too, when you say, you know, this one gentleman's been it for 25 years. Um, I love that because when I have clients say to me, you know, well, so when am I done? When do I just get to be done with this? Well, you can be done with meeting with me, but this is a lifelong journey. Right. I was wondering, like, what is the intent in being here? What's what's the driver? And typically when someone's like, when am I going to be done? Like, when am I going to be when am I going to be fixed? Right. Because I'm, I'm, I must be broken, you know, if I'm here, and it's your job to fix me. And go, well, we need to actually work with our metaphors now. <laughs> you know, like, are you broken? Are you a machine? What is it the Dalai Lama said? You're perfect, and there's room for improvement. <laughs> I love that. Right. <laughs> Exactly. That That's really our life message right there. We're already enough. We're already lovable, just as we are, and yet we can still grow and expand and improve. Right. right. And as human beings, we're, we're naturally drawn to expanding. I mean, if, if you did the same thing every day, be bored out of your mind, it has to be something that keeps grabbing your attention. So that group is just challenging these men to just grow and yeah. to keep growing and to keep challenging themselves. Yeah, I have more than one of them, but yes, absolutely. There's a, it's definitely, definitely the focus as well as creating, growing, and also feeling supported and being in male community. I think there isn't enough positive male community. And when I, when I heard women say, like, I think, you know, we should let women be the, be the leaders I say, I think things would be a lot better if women were the leaders, but I wouldn't want to cut off 
conscious men, you know, from leadership at all. Well, and that's a that's a great segue, actually, if we can speak about it for a moment is, can you tell me about, you know, your Rewire Leadership Institute? Because that's part of what you're really about is what I'm getting, you know, and, and helping men to be um, effective leaders in, you, you tell me. A couple things. Uh, one is that my wife started Rewire some years ago, so that's been much more her work in terms of the organizational world. I've been in the counseling, so-called therapy world for a very long time in the organizational world for more like the last 12, 15 years. Uh, but the basic idea is really that we can rewire our brains. And there's no question about that. And I know you've spoken to Rick and other people, so I won't bother going into you know, some of the newer neuroscience findings. But to me, they're always kind of bizarre that it actually needed to happen because it was obvious people can learn. Well, yeah. Well, and, and share just a little bit when you have your conceptual model of how we can rewire our brains. What do you tell people? I, I say to them that the wiring that ha that exists will always exist. It's It's there. It doesn't not exist. However, you can build on that and change your way of orienting. And so if you're oriented toward always feeling threatened, that wiring is there. And then there's a question like, how can you rewire your brain to feel safer? You know, and it turns out that there are various practices that you can do, you know, from sitting with your hand on your heart, which relaxes, you know, the system, the vagus nerve and and find, people find in general when they sit with their hand on their heart, there's something that's very calming about it. There's also noticing how your body is in levels of tension a lot of the time. Most people are in tension and they don't notice it. And by starting the range of what you think and do is limited by what you fail to notice. And so you start to like notice, oh, okay, well, my shoulders are up. I just actually started to notice that as I'm sitting here right now and I can breathe and let that down I can let that off and just stretch my jaw and go it's okay and I can actually give myself messages by saying like you know Daniel it's safe now it's mm -hmm. actually perfectly safe there are no threats oh okay yes and and taking long full deep breaths you know it triggers the parasympathetic rest and relax you know, nervous system, that it's, it's safe here. And so I'm giving myself, you know, multi-level, multi-modal, you know, messages. You know, and I can, and I can, oh, like, and I can even like to look, well, what's the worst that could happen if something were to happen? And tracking it down and go like, well, I can survive that. I can cope with that. You know, it might suck, you know, but I can, I can cope with that. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And so... When you think about calming, soothing uh, voices and messages, and you just keep giving yourself over and over and over again, inch by inch, it's a cinch. And so the consistency, you know, of those practices eventually starts changing the neural wiring, the neural, neural nets in the brain. And so that it becomes ultimately more of a default position 
And I can say for me, coming from a super angry father and a very controlling mother, not that my father wasn't controlling, but my father died when I was 10, so I was Mm. not around him for growing up a a lot of the time, uh, that I learned to be controlling, angry, pissy, reactive, and and anxious and all kinds of, of things. And over the years, through my own practice and through my like, you know, I don't want to be that way, you know, that I have absolutely changed the, the part of me that very quickly reacts to anger if something doesn't go my way. Like, for example, last Tuesday night, I was doing a presentation in front of over 100 people. I got there nice and early. The uh, AV person seemed to have my PowerPoint up, and then it wasn't. You know, and then it was, she couldn't get the PowerPoint to be on the screen, and she didn't know what to do, and I could, I, I thought it was going to take a few minutes, and I'd be able to go meditate and relax, and I could feel myself, you know, getting anxious, and then, and I could see the part of me that would want to blame her, like, like, how many times have you done this, or why don't you have this together, I, I, I saw all of those things happening, and I also saw that she was a human being who was doing her best, and she was really trying. It wasn't, it wasn't happifying for her, you know, to be having this experience. And I know that the old me would have thrown out little pokes, mm. you know, at her, showing my frustration, you know, there. And I could see that. You know, I could see all of those different things that were possible, and I didn't, I didn't act on them. And I thanked her when she did eventually, you know, get it together. Sure, and I was in contact with her around it, but it's like, you know, watching these things. And I think that that's part of how the change process occurs. Like, for me, I wanted to be the kind of person who's generous and caring and not caustic or sarcastic. I'm not saying that I've healed all of that, but I'm, I'm way, way deep into the journey with that. You know, and I... I I think uh, my, my friend uh, colleague, Chris Germer, one of the creators of Mindful Self-Compassion, I was leading a workshop recently, he gave me this great acronym, uh, WAIT, which stands for, Why Am I Talking? <laughs> That's great. And, and I, I add an apostrophe N to it, WAITING, which is, Why Am I Talking Now? Right. And I, I do think about that quite often, like, Chris, you know, just... You can observe these uh, less than positive elements coming out without necessarily acting on them. And that's the power of intention and mindfulness. And so we know that we can change the brain. I I see things before reacting, and that's part of what I teach other people. And I think one of the the great examples of that was from uh, the movie A Beautiful Mind, Mm-hmm. There was a scene at the end of it where someone came from the Nobel Committee to meet with John Nash to see if he was basically sane enough to walk across the stage in Stockholm and receive the Nobel Prize for economics. And the guy's hinting to him like, well, you know, do you kind of see this hallucinating? You know? And John Nash said to him, well, I still see them. And they showed... 
the high school, the uh, college roommate and this little girl who were his primary hallucinations floating around. So I still see them, but I don't pay attention to them anymore. Wow. Yeah. I think that that's part of it. It's a good metaphor, you know, for mindfulness that we're going to have thoughts that come up, but thoughts are not actions. And if we can observe those before acting out, we're in a much better position to have great relationships. And certainly we can prime our brains over time to be less reactive. Now, some people I, uh, uh, operate by, by weight, which is, and I, I told a friend of mine, friend colleague about weight, and he said, I think I'm more weight. And I said, yes. And he said, <laughs> Why am I not talking? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but some people are more on that side. Like they just freeze. They don't speak up. They don't challenge. They don't, you know, they're, they're unwilling to be vulnerable by speaking up and challenging. That hasn't been, I'm certain I've had some of that. That hasn't been my primary MO. But some people are more on that side. And so they need to speak up more and risk offending well, and, and the important point that you're talking about, too, is that we do have these natural responses, you know, this fight, flight, or freeze that are part of, you know, our human wiring, you know, in that primitive brain that clicks off. But instead of, like you said, just either totally withdrawing, like the freeze or the flight or speaking, you know, out loud right away and saying things that you may not necessarily truly mean, but it's just how your reactionary brain is at the moment to learn how to pause and notice, right? What your reaction is so that then you can respond out of that in a more thoughtful, intentional manner. Exactly. When you teach people that they can change the way they think and that's gonna change their life, we were kind of talking about how that then goes into the leadership stuff that you do. Well, a lot of times in, in the leadership work that I'm doing, I'm dealing with how people are thinking about their relationships, their direct reports, their area, their teams, their organization, and they're really not sure what to do. Like they're unhappy with what someone did or didn't do, and they're not sure whether to say something, how to say something, what to say, when to say it, why they're saying it, you know, and so there's a lot of different questions that come up around relationships. I remember working with a, um, a, a NASA engineer, and you know the saying, like, it's not rocket science? Well, having worked with a lot of rocket science scientists, most of them will say relationships are so much more complex than rocket science. <laughs> you know, rocket right. science actually formulas if you find the formula and work on the it's gonna work with people it could go south quickly and so having an awareness about that you know is really a critical part of the work
Programming on NoCo FM is supported by its listeners and by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com allows you to listen to an immense library of books for every taste on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, tablet, or computer. Audible.com has a special offer for listeners which includes a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial. Learn more and get your free audiobook now at noco.fm audible. Molly Bloom is an exceptional woman who grew up in an extraordinary family in Loveland, Colorado. Her parents both had successful professional careers. One of her brothers is a two-time Olympian and entrepreneur, while the other is a surgeon. Molly, however, took a different path. In 1999, Molly was ranked third in the world in freestyle skiing. Chronic neck and back pain caused her to retire early from the sport, and just a few short years later, she was running the most opulent poker games in the world, with movie stars and athletes as players, where it wasn't uncommon for hands to go into the millions of dollars. A federal indictment ended Molly's career as a game runner, and she was facing 10 years in prison. Molly would tell her story from Olympic hopeful to poker impresario in a memoir, Molly's Game, which was adapted into an Academy Award-nominated film of the same name, starring Jessica Chastain as Molly. Join us next week here on The Spark with Stephanie James for a very special event, an exclusive interview, the unsinkable Molly Bloom, and get the story behind the story. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Mountain, exclusively on NoCo FM. You can hear NoCo FM online at noco.fm and through the TuneIn and Live 365 apps. Podcast episodes are released the same day at thesparkpod.com. curious about this Rewire Leadership Institute that you're involved in. And what we're looking at is really some of the things that are emerging in modern neuroscience and an understanding just essentially of the brain, that we can rewire our brains for greater happiness, peace, success. And that when you have targeted practices that where you're focusing on particular states of being that practiced over time, with enough intensity tends to rewire the brain, which is not to say that the the old wiring that is there disappears. That's there. But what happens is that we create new neural pathways in the brain so that over time, our practices turn into habits and those habits become kind of a second nature. And they can even override some of the old kind of survival-based, defensive, threat-oriented, typical ways of reacting that we learned in childhood, we learned to survive in our families and our environments as youngsters, are we actually able to intervene and create new ways of orienting. And so the idea in Rewire Leadership is that we do that specifically with people in leadership positions you know, as well as really working in organizations, which tend to be very kind of threat-based. And, you know, people can get things done when they're in a threatened way of orienting, but the problem is that over time, it erodes a sense of well-being, and you can't kind of psycho, 
uh, psychologically, metabolically, you know, be able to continue on at that at that pace. And so it actually is kind of entropic, uh, meaning that we, things break down over time. So so the focus here is to give people practices that they ultimately do that are both intrapersonal, i.e. working on their own inner states of being, and interpersonal in terms of how they relate with other people. And so we're really looking at helping to create more thrive-oriented atmospheres or environments. And the only way to do that is for people to really work on their mindsets and really work on their, their skill sets as well. Like you said, both interpersonal and extrapersonal. Interpersonal and intrapersonal. Oh, intrapersonal, yes. Extrapersonal in terms, in terms of dealing with extraterrestrials. <laughs> sure. You know, that would be important because I, I hear it's coming. <laughs> it may be. You never know. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I'm curious, too. How long does a training last when, when you do, like, say that you work with a business organization? It completely depends you know, some sometimes it's a five-day training. Sometimes it's a two-day training. Sometimes it's one with follow-up. Sometimes it's ongoing coaching. You know that happens even over years. So it really depends on the wants and needs and and focus of you know, who who comes to us. Right. For the rest of us human beings that that maybe aren't in sales or you know aren't aren't in business. But we want to start doing some of that, you know, changing some of the neural circuitry. Is if we start practicing some of these different techniques, mindfulness, and some of the different things to do that, is is there a certain amount of time that it takes to start seeing that difference? You know, it depends on the person and the person's focus and their age, and you know, just so many different factors. But generally, you can start seeing results in a few weeks. You know, maybe maybe even less. And some people have these profound life experiences that just shift them you know, literally in a moment. But I, I don't count on those types of experiences. Those are those are serendipitous and given by the gods, as it were. Just for you personally, what has have you had a shift like that in your own life? Or what has been your experience when you've worked on rewiring your own thought patterns? Uh, I've been working at it for many decades right now, so I don't think that I've had one moment which you know transformed my life. Like some people talk about having a near-death experience where they're suddenly never the same. I've had experiences where I thought I would never be the same, but that didn't turn out to be true. So I have found that pretty much slow and steady, if there is a race, wins the race and consistency is really powerful and so it's you know it's kind of like the tortoise and the hare not to say that life is a race but that generally what i've found is by being consistent be it through exercise diet meditation my my mindset in terms of how i orient to people i've made massive progress you know over the years but it definitely it definitely takes an intention and a willingness to be focused on what it is you want to bring forth in yourself. And so I know for me, growing up in a very angry, emotionally abusive family, I guess that could be stated for a lot of families, as it turns out, uh, that I really had to work hard on the part of me that learned to internalize that angry, surly you know, character. And over the years, 
because of how I wanted to be in relationship versus how I was conditioned to be in relationships. I've really gotten to see the parts of myself that could say something unkind or was hurt by something someone said and would want to exact a pound of flesh. I've seen <clears throat> those patterns before they emerge interpersonally. So the vast majority of the time I won't act on my less, shall we say, evolved impulses. <sighs> and I think that uh, that you know, is, is really how ultimately people change by starting to see the old patterns. You know, instead of looking from the thought, from the reaction, looking at that. And, and that's essentially what part, at least a part of what, what mindfulness is about, is being able to look at and observe patterns, you know, and recognize patterns. You know, as human beings, we're, we're pattern-recognizing creatures, you know, at our best. And that allows us to actually step back and see patterns that, you know, may not serve us as, as well as those that will. And it's kind of like the thing, like, doctor, doctor hurts when I do that. Don't do that. You know, it feels good when I do that. Do that. You know, and sometimes life is just simpler than we we tend to make it. Have you ever seen the, there's a YouTube video where the woman has a nail in her forehead? I have. <laughs> yeah. It's not a nail. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's exactly what it reminds me of, that when we can become aware, though, like you're saying, of the reaction, and when you're saying, you know, we do keep some of that old hardwired circuitry, it's not that the reaction doesn't come up. It does come up, but we can recognize it instead of allowing that reaction to be our automatic response. Absolutely. It's really a, a model of course correction, you know, in the sense that you may like want to have a wonderful, loving relationship all the time, but you don't do everything that would be in the service of that. I don't mean in particular, but probably you also <laughs> in other ways. I'm, I'm pretty close to a perfect mate, I, but... Uh... I'm sure you are. <laughs> so I am also. Yes, <laughs> yes, I know. So we, we have an idea about how we want to be, and we start moving toward that, but... You know, there are times when we're certainly off. And then you go, well, how do I really want to be? I want to be there. So you kind of go back on course. And that may mean that if you've been uh, less than stellar in a relationship, say that what you do then is you apologize. You know, so sorry, I was off. And look inside and go, what shadow motivations might there be in me that lead me to behave in those particular ways that are against or contrary to my stated essential values, you know, because we all have those parts of ourselves that are not, you know, not stellar, you know, for sure. And that's why we are not perfect beings as human beings. And much of the work is just learning and course correcting and focusing on our North Stars and where we want to be going. And that helps, that's literally what helps shift the brain, you know, into more pro-social pro values and attitudes and behaviors. To identify that it, within yourself, I mean, are you one of those people that does lists, you have goals, do you, do you do like a yearly goal sheet? How do you come up with what your North Star is going to be? Because sometimes that, that can change for us throughout our lives. How do, you, how do you define that, I guess, for yourself or help others define that? Well, the way I've looked at these dynamics for a lot of years, so I don't think that my North Star changes from year to year. And I, I'm not 
someone who makes a list of goals per se, you know, per every year or something. I, I found that I didn't tend to do them. So now I no longer suffer the failure of not doing those. <laughs> but I, I think for me, I tend to pay attention to my body, you know, in the sense that if I'm, you know, saying that I want love and connection, but I'm inwardly comparing myself and competing, I, I start you know, practice self-compassion for myself and recognize that I'm a human being and we human beings have certain wiring that lead us to have certain reactions you know, that are just part of the human human uh, anatomical or psychoanatomical, you know, machinery in a way. So I, my standards are different now. I used to think I should never feel competitive. I should never feel in doubt. I should never, like, had a lot of shoulds. But I found that the reality was that that wasn't who I was. And as I started learning more about neuroscience and about evolutionary psychology and about how we are wired to fit in with the tribe, that we're wired to seek status, you know, we're wired to want to be seen in positive lights, I got to uh, go like, well, you know what, it's not so personal. You know, and, and as I've learned that, like, why should I not be a human being? Why are my standards, like I'm supposed to be stellar in every single way, and I wasn't, you know, that would lead towards shame and blame, like, why should I be? And so I found that the practices of awareness about recognizing this is one's basic humanity, and two, is recognizing that I'm a person, you know, that I'm not unique, or if I am unique, I'm unique just like everyone else. You know, then it, it puts one in a position to uh, have more of a, a reflection, a, a distance. I, I had an experience some years ago where uh, I went to this picnic that this couple had. They have it every year, and every year I'd say, oh, I think maybe I'll go, and I didn't. And my wife was gone, and I just decided, oh, I think I'll go. And I was driving in Marin County, north of San Francisco, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and I pulled up to the parking lot where the picnic was playing, taking place, and I looked out in the meadow, and there were people at the picnic. Who knew? And there was interest. <laughs> at that moment, I suddenly had this remarkably strong feeling of anxiety, and I, re and I could really feel it in my heart. And it was at that moment that I could really see some of, the, some of my practices that shifted my way of orienting, which was... In that moment, when I felt this in pretty intense anxiety, there was a voice in me. You know, I wasn't hallucinating. There was a voice in me that said, you know, Daniel, that's perfectly understandable and fine that you would feel anxious. You don't know who's going to be at this picnic. You barely know the people who are having the picnic. There's stranger danger. Your system is wired for threat in new environments. So, of course, that would be natural that you would have that type of reaction. And as soon as I heard that voice, and it was really obviously a, a part of me, my, my whole body relaxed. I didn't have to defend anything. And I was, it turned out I knew people at the party and there was no, no big deal you know, there. But the, it was that really compassionate, understanding voice that I got to see how much I had shifted because the old me would have gone, God, Daniel, you're a psychologist. 
you lead groups? Are you clueless? I mean, after all these years of work and da da da, you're still having it's just a picnic. What's the big deal? So, you know, that voice you know still exists in me, a kind of harsh, critical voice. But with all the work I've done around understanding and self-compassion, as well as in my work with like literally thousands and thousands of people over the years, I just see that this is part of being human. And so I, I go like, well, you know, it's it's challenging being human. We all have our different stuff, and people can look on the outside and they see, oh, this person's so confident, secure, and attractive, and wealthy, and this and that. I've had the experience of working with a lot of people who were envied by others, and I know about their inner lives, and it's it can be very, very different, and often is very, very different. That's why I think that like. Like Facebook, for example, I'm not going to go into a big expose on it, but I'll say one thing about it, which is I think one of the negative things about Facebook is that literally it's, you're showing your face to the world. You're, I think it should be called persona book. You know, you're, you're masked to the world, how you want people to see you. And so it's a quite a curated image, you know, often. And what happens is that people looking at that, they see the representation of how someone wants to be seen, and they can be very successful at being seen that way. And they compare their insides, which are more insecure and doubtful and all those kinds of things, to their perception of the other person's outsides, and they fall short. You know, and then they go, I have to curate my image better, you know, than that. And so it, it, it leads to an inauthenticity. And that's quite the opposite of the mission of creating a, a world, you know, of, of greater connection. But of course, what exactly does connection mean? So I'm, a, I'm of the believer of creating intimate relationships of like into me, seeing into beauty warts and all, and you know that you don't have to defend, you know, your your flaws, essentially. Well, and that was one of the greatest things. I remember that from grad school, where I had a professor write on the board intimacy and divided it into three parts, just like you said, into, me, see. You know, and, and that's what intimacy truly is with each other. And, and truly what the gift is that I'm hearing, too, that you had as you've done this work within yourself, as you've developed, you've truly befriended yourself and developed this intimacy with yourself that I think is one of the big challenges that we have, really befriending ourselves in a way where we allow ourselves to be human, that we can have a human response and not have this unrealistic expectation that we have to be the Facebook page. Yes, I seek being a Facebook page. <laughs> Life that is my greatest desire. You know, and which is not to, to say, Stephanie, that I don't get down at times and feel horrible and, you know, go into black holes. But what I've noticed is that they're fewer and far between, you know, and I think that that just recognizing that the, the old patterns, again, those, that old wiring is there and sometimes it ascends, you know, and, and really how quickly can you course correct, you know, and get back to uh, a more desirable status quo or way of, way of orienting. Well, and I, I think that's just it. How, how I, I really like that. How quick can you course correct? Because that's, that's the inevitable that people, you know, will come into my office and say, well, 
you know, they don't want the ups and downs that are naturally going to occur in life. Because, you know, and life never just goes in one trajectory. Mm. It's never just going to be streamlined straight up. Um, so teaching that, you know, it's okay when, when we realize and accept that life is going to have suffering, not that it's all suffering, but there's going to be those painful times and there's times where we're going to mess up and we're going to lose ourselves and we're not going to be holding on to exactly, you know, whatever standard we, it is that we've set for ourselves. And yet we can, like, I like that term, course correct. We can come back to ourselves. We can reground, recenter, get out of the rabbit hole quicker, more quickly. You know, I, I had this happen myself because clients will say to me, well, you always seem, you know, happy. I imagine you don't struggle with this. And of course, we're human. So if we're human, we struggle with it. And, and what I often shared as an example is years ago, walking from my car two blocks to a coffee shop that I frequent. And as I got out of the car, a song came on that reminded me of an old boyfriend. And so I started percolating on that and I started getting in this really terrible mood. The more I thought about it, the more I walked down this block. Right. So by the time I got to the coffee shop, I was just pissed. You know, I was in this horrible mood. And if I would have kept going, you know, I, I, it really could have affected and ruined my day. And instead, you know, I had about 15 minutes before my first client. So I sat down. It was a beautiful sunny day out on the patio, pulled out my notebook and just started writing down the things that I am grateful for that are going on presently in my life. And so that immediately, I think I came to the second thing on that list and it immediately pulled me out of that place. I could just all of a sudden feel my body exhale. It was just like, oh, okay. So it's not that we don't go down those rabbit holes. It's that yeah. we can get out. We can course correct more quickly. Absolutely. And that's really the essence of resilience right there. Because as uh, Hemingway said, life breaks us all. And some of us become strong in the broken places. Hmm. And, and that there, there are these, I call them disruptive, unwanted changes, DUCs or ducks. Okay. You know, for sure. And so like, and for you, in that moment, the disruptive unwanted change was a thought. You know, there are times when those come from within, there's simply a thought that happens, not that simple, you know, or that there's an outer event that occurs that triggers thoughts. I mean, on the thought level, you know, someone could be sitting and watching a beautiful sunset. Oh, it's so beautiful. And then the mind goes, God, I remember when I was sitting here with Mary. Oh, God, look at look what she did to me. I can't believe her. You know, and it, relationships, man, you can never really trust if, it, if it's a guy, heterosexual. Yeah, guy. yeah, yeah. I mean, and my, I hated my mother. And like, it can go on and on and on, this whole... Uh, associative chain there and that's part of the challenge of being human is that we are these thought jumping organisms that one thought will lead to another that will lead to another that will lead to another and the thing about thoughts is that they don't exist unto themselves they're like free radicals and so they attach to emotion and so then it becomes much stronger there and so for you in that moment you started feeling that when you started thinking about this old boyfriend, I, mean, I don't know the context of it, but you obviously weren't happy about it and it reminded you of certain things and you start feeling it in your body and, and the whole thing starts taking you down and that's what feels real. You know, in that moment, that's what's real. 
human being like, well, okay, you're looking from the thought pattern. You're not looking at that. And so what you did was you pulled out your journal and you went, okay, I'm going to look at this, not from this. And how can I look at, well, to step back and go, well, what can I really be grateful for? And that starts changing your whole thought pattern and how your soma, body and emotions start aligning with that. And all of a sudden you're feeling great and nothing's changed. Yeah, that's what's important. <laughs> there was no outer circumstance that actually happened. Just like your, your example with the sunset, there was no outer circumstance that affected those thoughts. All of a sudden it was just like, boom, something was triggered. So one of the questions that I get asked a lot too is, um, well, what about when you have horrible circumstances? You know, what about when something awful happens? How do you pull yourself out of that? Because say it's a death in the family or say it's, you know, you, you're physically injured in a way. What, how do you respond to that? That's a different resilient path, you know, which is, you know, one is what meaning can you find in it? You know, is there some way of looking at it that could be helpful for you and or others? I've heard paraplegic guys who had, you know, became para paraplegics in their late teenage or early 20. And, that, and generally, there's a sense if they worked on themselves, they don't regret it. Because what happened is they become more compassionate, more understanding, more philosophical, that they were, they consider themselves kind of like these male macho jerks. You know, when they were younger and they were going on a certain path that didn't look good and they became better, more decent human beings and they were grateful for that. You know, there were people who Viktor Frankl talked about in Man's Search for Meaning who were in Nazi concentration camps and who were thriving because they were giving it a meaning. They were helping other people. They were looking at it like, okay, well, how can we, you know, get out of here? What meaning can we give to this and can we bring this to the world? and be supportive and loving. So it's it's not just what happens to you, for sure. You know, it's the meaning you give to it. John Milton, the novelist, he said, the mind is its own place, and in itself can create a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. And it's one of the biggest messages. It's not, it's not just the circumstance. In fact, in studies on happiness, generally people who are billionaires or they have enough money to get by are about as happy as each other. It's when you're in deep poverty that the happiness level drops. Which I think is really interesting because there's there's that very stereotypical myth in our society, the more money you have, the happier you're gonna be. And I, I have actually read that research as well that talks about after a certain point, you know, the, the level of happiness is like once you're out of poverty, it's not going to be affected. In fact, there are people to, who are super wealthy and then they feel terrible because somebody has more money than them. They only have $4 billion, but somebody has 64, you know? And so that's the kind of comparative mind. Where do I fit in? I don't have as much money. And there are a lot of, I mean, that's a very common, you know, human dynamic. And that's why I think ultimately it's much better to go to a more spiritual oriented, you know, place in life because it's the only way to start stepping back from the kind of human wiring that leads to inner and outer war, essentially. Right. 
was after a small comment. <laughs> that was good. That was, but it's it's true. And and to resonate part of I resonate with part of what you said earlier about you know heaven and hell also is held between our two ears. Absolutely. No matter what our outer circumstances are, we're we're creating that internally. And so to be able to develop, like you said, a spiritual practice or a mindfulness practice so that we learn how to do this differently, that we don't, it's, it's like, it's such a duality. It's embracing our humanness and at the same time saying we don't just have to go on automatic pilot either. Just have the, the fallback so we can actually do things to help ourselves experience a little bit more of nirvana. Right now, you know, professionally in your life, Daniel, for you, what, what brings you the greatest joy right now? I'm involved with numerous different projects, and I, I have found that it's interesting. In my 60s, I've become a joiner, you know, and I, I was always a bit of a lone wolf. I mean, people come and work with me, but I, I had some partnerships with people. But I've noticed that I've joined numerous different kind of organizations and ways of orienting in the last few years. One of them is I've become a board member of California Institute of Integral Studies, you know, which is doing a whole bunch of different ways of, of looking at uh, consciousness and transformation. I actually got my PhD there many moons ago, and I've become part of Division 51 of American Psychological Association, which is men and masculinities. And I'm very interested in helping to transform toxic masculinity. I, I'm involved with a couple guys, and we have some people who are going to probably be assisting us on really developing a work quote, which we're calling Ultimate Courage, which is the courage to go within and really become aware and practice self-compassion and develop resilience. And it's aligned with some of the work Kristen Neff and Chris Germer are doing mindful self-compassion. So I've been working with Steve Hickman, who's the executive director of the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion on developing a men's program that is not only, it's, it's mindful self-compassion in part, but it's also a lot of the work I've brought in terms of group process and understanding the male mind and how do we really develop strength with heart, which is, which is what I call my men's work, you know, that you can be kind, compassionate and strong and not a jerk. No, that doesn't sound like it really fits into those that sequence. But <laughs> no, I get it, though. Yeah. When we talk about talking about men, like, is he a jerk? You know. And so that work is something that's very near and dear to my heart. And I notice that I have a whole bunch of different workshops in different parts of the country, you know, set up to be doing that. And I'm really looking at that as being a major part of the rest of my life, as well as my work in the resilient brain. You know, so I have different presentations on that coming up. And a lot of my work around how to have difficult conversations is still near and dear to my heart. But I'm really also looking at how to have appreciative conversations. I think that a, a lot of times, I venture to say most times, people don't say what they really like and appreciate about others. Mm -hmm. They'll criticize directly or indirectly, but they won't appreciate uh, directly or indirectly, or maybe indirectly. And so I'm a really strong believer in that, and I find that I just do it reflexively. And I'll do that with you, and I just want to tell you 
Yeah, Stephanie, it's been a delight talking with you. You're a lovely person, and I really feel your your positive sentiment and how much you want to make a difference, and no doubt you are. Yeah, so thank you for being you and doing what you're doing. Thank you, Daniel. That that means so much to me, and, and I, I do appreciate your time and, and you being a part of this, and it's just such a delight, and I've learned things from you, and, and I, I wanted to ask you, how, how would people get a hold of you if they wanted to find out about your group, if they wanted to come to one of your workshops? They can contact me at daniel at rewire, R-E-Wire, leadership.com. There's also Daniel at relationships, that's plural, relationships, that, T-H-A-T, work.com. Both are websites also. And so happy to hear from anyone who has questions. And also the Rewire Leadership website has a whole bunch of different practices and processes that are freely given and can be very helpful. And and I would also recommend going to the Wellspring Institute of Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. Uh, And that's Rick's nonprofit Rick Hansen's and I'm on the board of that since the beginning and there's a lot of different practices on there as well. I, I appreciate it so much Daniel this has been just a privilege and just an honor for me thank you. My pleasure thank you so much Stephanie. It's amazingly powerful to know we actually have the ability to go beyond our hardwired circuitry of fight or flight reaction and choose to be aware of what arises within us, hold it in observation, and to respond in a more thoughtful manner. No matter what kind of childhood we came from or what conditioning we received through our developmental process, we can rewire our habitual thoughts and create a more intentional way of responding. Our strengths for both men and women comes from our ability to be vulnerable and being willing to be courageous enough to look at the content of our hearts. It's much easier to keep up the facade or bravado as it becomes a barrier from intimacy and the hard, messy work of being aware of and in touch with our emotional experience. However, finding the courage to face our fears, drop into our feelings, is a transformative process that allows us to truly experience the deeper richness that life has to offer. Through mindfulness and meditation practice, we can reap the rewards of this process. We can retrain our brains to better serve us and allow ourselves to enjoy life more than we have ever imagined. You too can begin this process and begin to rewire your brain and enhance your life. A whole new way of being in the world is waiting for you. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. 
The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.